0: This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. Jermaine Greer is one of the most influential, outspoken and controversial feminist writers and thinkers of the 20th century. She spoke to Kim in 2007 about her new book, which examines the life of Anne Hathaway, best known as William Shakespeare's wife, but naturally... The conversation takes a few different twists and turns. Enjoy.
1: Dr Germaine Grier became the high priestess of feminism with her 1972 book, The Female Eunuch. And throughout the 35 years since then, she has never been far from the headlines. Apart from her books, uh, she's gained a reputation for outrageous statements and volatile behaviour. Such is the lot of an outspoken woman, she might say, and in fact does. When she visited New Zealand in 1972 to promote the female eunuch, one magazine editorialised thus, Greer had more impact in one short week than the combined visits of the royal family, Pierre Trudeau, LBJ and Agnew. (laughs) And, of course, she received a police summons alleging she used indecent language in Auckland, an eight-letter word. She was later convicted of using obscene language, a four-letter word, lost her appeal and refused to pay the $40 costs awarded against her. She's recently turned her attention to Shakespeare's wife, Anne Hathaway, who has had not a great press or not much press at all, actually. Dr Greer spoke to me from the workshop at the bottom of her garden in England. So I asked her to describe her house.
0: Well, my house is made of flint and brick um, string work. It has an extension built on sometime in the 1950s, probably, in Cambridge stock brick, but that's all covered with um, what we used to call Virginia Creeper, sometimes known as Boston ivy, Parthenocissus quinquifolia. And then there's a long, narrow garden with a long, narrow pond, which is set in stone ledges. And there are all kinds of uh, plants in flower at the moment because it's meant to be uh, a spring and autumn garden rather than a summer garden. But it's gone all wrong and gone its own way, so it's all puce and yellow when it was meant to be cream and blue and uh, dusty pink. And it houses one peacock and one peahen and one pea chick. The birth of the pea chick was the biggest surprise because I thought the peahen was menopausal and I thought the peacock had never done the business. So when she came out of the border with a tiny one at foot, so little you could not believe it. So I spent the whole day creating high-protein meals for this elfin thing with huge feet.
1: I'm glad she uh, eschewed celibacy, though. I beg your pardon? I'm glad she eschewed celibacy. <laughs>
0: I don't know whether she did or not, because this little chick looks just like her not like him. And she's a white peacock and he's a green one. So I just don't know. Maybe she had him in, a, in her or her or it or whatever it is, in her fallopian tubes lurking. I don't quite know what um, happens, whether you have superfetation in peacocks and peafowl. But I'm very proud of her. And then you come to my office, which is at the bottom of the garden, and is full of filing cabinets containing 140 file drawers of archive which are in the process of being sold but i can never get round to actually clinching the deal who are you
1: trying to sell them to or who wants them
0: i think it would be unwise of me to say at this stage really ah. Is, ah, and, and then, then there's, a, there's the is there a bidding
1: war is there a bidding war for them
0: No, I don't think there is. I think we know who's going to get them. The difficulty is it's impossible to value it. And until you get other people in the frame uh, and there's a bit of bidding, you have really no idea. It's a bit like, you know, taking... It's a bit like cash in the attic. It's exactly the same, you know. We're taking our our goodies to market. And the reason for all of that is my 125 acres of rainforest. In Australia... Yes, which is, it's not so unusual in New Zealand for people to buy manageable areas of destroyed cowrie forests and things and try to rebuild them. Very unusual in Australia. And I'm just hoping I can start a fashion so that people think that's a good thing to do with your money.
1: So hang on a minute, you're selling your archives in order mm. to fund your rainforest, is that what you're doing?
0: Well, yeah, because I've got a workforce of four permanent workers who are quite well paid mm-hmm. because, I, because they're very good at what they do. And um, I don't, I probably could, they, they like to work well enough to work for a lot less money, but I don't think that's fair, especially if they've, they've got long distances to drive to get up into the forest from their own houses and things like that. And then we also have all the other expenses, like I've just got a bill in front of me now for two loads a week of mulch, and that's $600 a week just in mulch, and the the wages bill is about $2,000 a week. This is for your rainforest mulch, Uh,
1: for your garden
0: mulch. In fact, it's town mulch we use, which is the cheapest we can get. No, but I mean, what's the mulch for? Is the mulch for your rainforest? Well, you see, the rainforest itself, uh, as anybody, I mean, people doing the same job in New Zealand have got to deal with the fact that what should be forest is Kauri pine, is um, Monterey pine and things like that. We have to get the rubbish out. Uh, we have to heal the the gaps in the forest which are full of pioneers and opportunist species which um, actually militate against the natural regeneration in the forest. But also half the property was cleared for dairy. It's very similar to the situation that pertains in New Zealand. So mm. we've got a lot of exotic grasses, mostly kikuyu to get rid of. So we clear and plant and mulch and clear and plant and mulch. The mulch keeps down the weed species because the forest species can't get going if they're fighting against soft weed. And again, it's the same kind of soft weeds that people know in New Zealand. How much time do you spend in Australia now? Four months a year. Two tranches of two months. But I'm going to be worried about my carbon footprint because that gives me a big, long, black toenail oh, wow. and I think I've yeah. got to do something about it.
1: I was going to ask you about that. I mean, it's all very well to be environmental, but it's such a long way away to do it.
0: I know, but the problem is uh, that in Australia, I can't make enough money to do it at all. So that's the dilemma. Here it's easy for me to make that kind of money. In Australia, where they expect you to do broadcasts and TV and everything for nothing... Oh, you just can't make any money. So what are you and doing? And the newspapers won't pay either.
1: What are you doing to make your money in, in Britain mainly at the moment?
0: Well, it's I write for newspapers. Um, probably at the moment, I was running at about two articles a week and they get a pound a word. Um, and I do personal appearances for about £2,000 each, up and down the country, one or two a week. Um... There's also the fact that Shakespeare's wife's doing quite nicely, thank you, and we've sold it in the United States very well, which is really good news because they'll put a lot of muscle into marketing it properly. Um, so we make a lot of money and we pay a lot of tax. <laughs> one of the reasons, I mean, I'm not
1: suggesting that, that Australia pays anybody, particularly well, unless you John Laws, but I mean one of the reasons why you might not be... Making lots of money in Australia is because you've been so rude to them. You've been so nasty to Australians.
0: No, I haven't. Not to Australians. I mean, Steve Irwin is one Australian, and he happened to be dead at the time. Oh, Lord, I wasn't even...
1: No, I wasn't even thinking about Steve Irwin. I mean, you know, you've called Australia a
0: cultural wasteland, etc. I haven't. That's not true. I didn't never use that expression. There was a misunderstanding. That was John Howard, who hadn't read the article, uh, because he's a complete media junkie. He was uttering an opinion about something he knew nothing about, which is not unusual with John Howard. Uh, What actually happened was the Sunday Times asked me to write a column about why two million Australians were working in Britain. Uh, And at the top level. I mean, running hospitals and, and broadcasting stations and all kinds of things. You could say the same. You could ask the same question about the number of New Zealanders in Australia. I was trying to explain the fact that people who really want to get to the top in their profession have got to go to where the competition is keenest. Uh, and that's what happens. And they end up at the top of the tree in another country. Then it becomes difficult to go home because there isn't the same earning opportunities or even career development opportunities. It doesn't matter who we're talking about. Lawyers, journalists, academics, we're all under the same pressure to go to where the competition is keenest. That's, I was explaining something to the British. The British, you know, uh, I'm sure you realise that their arrogance is peerless. I mean, the other day, uh, an editor rang me from one of the right-wing tabloids and said, asked me to write a piece. He said, can you explain why so many British people are going to live in Australia? And uh, I hadn't read any article saying that so many British people were going to live in Australia. I thought they were all in bloody Spain. Um, and I said, uh, no. He said, but, you know, you've come here and you've settled in England. Why don't you write a piece about what a shithole Australia is? No. <laughs> I thought, you asshole. I mean, it's like all expatriates, you know, I will criticize Australia, especially over outrageous things like the treatment of refugees, and uh, the suspension of civil liberties, and even the workplace agreements. Uh, Australian politics has gone right at a speed that is absolutely dizzying, and New Zealanders can see that very clearly, because you live in a much more rational country. Um... And I have the right to criticise those things, but when English people tell me that Australia's a shithole, I'm annoyed. I smack them down because <laughs> they have no right to say any such thing. There are a great many things about Australia I bet you that didn't... are terrific, and and most of all, the people. I think they're the best people in the world. I bet you did not... live in one of the worst countries in I the world. I bet
1: you did not think we were particularly rational in 1972 when we prosecuted you <laughs>
0: prosecuted you for using obscene language. <laughs> I didn't think it was particularly irrational either. I mean, the law is the law. The law is always an ass. We know this. And that was a put-up job, and that was put up by the students because one of their leaders was in jail for saying bullshit in a public meeting. Tim and so they asked me to say bullshit on stage in the town hall wherever I was, Auckland. Um, And I did it. But then uh, what what they actually did me for was hilarious because I was talking to a group within the university, which would be considered not public space, about uh, sex. And I used the four-letter word as an intransitive verb, um, which I think is the least sadistic way of using it. And uh, they did me for that. And that was bizarre. That was very strange. And we won the bullshits. There were two bullshits and the four-letter word. We won the two bullshits, but we lost the four-letter word. And then the students went completely wild and began overturning police cars. And it was hilarious. But now I think it's quite clear that New Zealand is the smartest English-speaking country in the world. Whoa. I'll write that down. Um... Tell me about. Well, I've said it. I've said it to lots of people, including your prime minister. Tell me about Shakespeare's
1: wife. Uh, it's mm. a, a redressing of the wrongs that you think have been done to Anne Hathaway by history, or specifically by bachelor dons, you say, incapable mm. of relating to women.
0: Mm. Really, all of them? Oh uh, well, it depends. Um, some of them, definitely. Um... And the the tradition goes, it, it doesn't go much further back than the 19th century. Before that, they like to think she was beautiful and faithless for some reason. I mean, they just can't accept the fact that he was a married man and he had a wife and she was probably closer to him than they are. Mm. And they can't, they, they just have to get her away from him. So they say, oh, she was illiterate. Well, she, might, she certainly, almost certainly couldn't write, but it's much less likely that she couldn't read. And so on and so forth. I mean, the interesting thing about this book is that it has done what none of my colleagues have ever done, which is to try and use the social history of the period as a way of coming at better guesses. It's all guesswork, but the guesses that have been made in the past are are bad guesses, and they're made in flagrant denial of advances in social history, and in particular, the history of women. It's a book written entirely in the conditional. It could have been like this, it could have been like this, it could have been like this. Yep. And I was taught to think like that without an irritable searching after certainty. What's so what the I guesswork? what I tried to do was put them together. What's the
1: guesswork on the Dons part, the Bachelor Dons or the Shakespeare Wallers, what's their guesswork that you're objecting to?
0: Well, why would Stephen Greenblatt, who is at Cambridge with me, and he's not a Bachelor, uh, why would Stephen Greenblatt want people to believe that Shakespeare loathed his wife and felt a deep physical repugnance for her? There's no evidence for it whatsoever. But Not neither,
1: to her. neither is there any evidence that he felt good things for her, but you're saying, well, that's as good as any other assumption, are you?
0: Well, um... I don't even, I don't say, you know, that he was madly in love with her and they were as thick as thieves and it was a marriage made in heaven, da-da-da-da-da. As far as I'm concerned, it was probably a marriage like any other. And they're difficult to understand. I don't even understand my parents' marriage. And I don't make judgments about the quality of the interaction between them. I don't enter the marriage bed. Um, i think that they were truly married that they took marriage very seriously it's a heroic theme in shakespeare's work and it's a heroic theme for the reformers of the 16th century and and, anne's family we know were puritans her brother bartholomew was a church warden at, at holy trinity which was a fairly puritanical church stratford had a puritan brotherhood as a corporation uh, Shakespeare seems to have wanted to identify with the gentry more than with the corporation, um, and that has to be taken into account. What I've said is, you know, Anne had her gossips, i.e. her friends, the people she'd grown up with and worked with all her life, and he had his. It's not, it's not a romantic novel. You know, it's, it's quite a cool look at what their marriage was like, but I would never pretend for a second that it wasn't very important to Shakespeare.
1: I'm talking to Germaine Greer, whose latest book is Shakespeare's Wife. Why did Shakespeare leave him, and this is now famous, why did Shakespeare leave her his second best bed?
0: Well, let's see. Uh, First of all, uh, a widow in uh, 16th century Midlands uh, was entitled to her widow bed, that, uh, but she had to make a claim for it. It had to be removed from the estate. The widow bed was usually the bed in which she had conceived and borne her children, which was hers by right. When Shakespeare and Anne were married, they probably had nothing but her portion. I don't even know that he had a portion to match it because his father was absolutely broke. She had ten marks, which was enough to build a little house, a little shack to live in. Um... And they would have had a bed to sleep in. But it wouldn't have been a grand bed. It would have been um, a basic bed. Now, even a basic bed for Elizabethan householders is an important item. Think of it as about as important as the family car in terms of investment. It was built in situ. It was bolted to the rafters and the floor. And depending on how much you had to spend on it, uh, you had either had a mattress of, of Shucks or straw, or as you went up in the world, you got down. Until in in the end, if you had a grand bed with carving and hangings and feather beds, it was worth as much as a small house. Now, when the the Shakespeares began to accumulate some wealth, and I think it's got more to do with her activities than his, because I think the the case for him making money in the theatre is highly exaggerated. Um, when they began to accumulate wealth, they bought themselves a big house. The big house had to have a state apartment for important visitors to Stratford, and that would have been the carved and gilded bed, but it probably wasn't used on a daily basis. The bed that Shakespeare was dying in was probably the bed that Anne and he had conceived their children in, and it was quite likely to be forgotten. And if that had happened, the executors would have prevented Anne taking it out of the estate, and she would have lost her widow bed. It's written in as an afterthought, probably unnecessarily, by Francis Collins, who is a a poor old country attorney who's way out of his depth with Shakespeare's will, which is a dreadful document. And Shakespeare didn't write it himself. It would have made more impression if he'd written it himself as an afterthought, but he didn't. It was the lawyer who scribbled it in.
1: And that would explain why, as some people point out, it doesn't have the usual preface, "My beloved wife."
0: Uh, well, it, not all wives are beloved in Will's, and they're not all mentioned either. Anne is not mentioned; is not made executrix for a very good reason. I mean, she's seven years older, as uh, eight years older than Shakespeare. And and this is a will that goes down into generations of inheritance of these bits and pieces of land, all of which John Hall managed to lose. Um, And therefore, she can't be an executor. It has to be a younger person. And if she's not going to be executrix, she doesn't really have to be mentioned because she already has her rights established by custom. It doesn't make any mention of her clothes, for example, and lots of wills do. And there are husbands who refuse to let their wives take their clothes out of the estate. It, um, it can be quite rocky. It doesn't say where she's going to live either. But it's a mess of a will, and there's a reason for it. And the reason, I think, is the settlement between John Hall and Susanna Shakespeare, um, wh- who were married in 1607. And I think that when, if we ever find that settlement, and we well could then I think we'll understand the will.
1: Have you been building up a head of steam on this for years? I mean, you've been <laughs> studying and lecturing on Shakespeare for a long, long time. 1967, you wrote your doctorate on Shakespeare's early comedies. You've been teaching mm-hmm. 1986. You wrote another book about Shakespeare. Have, has this been in your mind to do all that time?
0: Well, not really. What I wanted to do was something different. I wanted to write about the the importance of marriage in Shakespeare's work and in the social history of the period, that whereas we think now of a marriage as kind of the inevitable ending of a comedy, in the 16th century it just isn't. Comedies aren't about wooing and wedding. But we somehow thought there must have been and they must be lost ones and perhaps they'd be in Europe, perhaps they're in Spain or Italy or something. And so when I went to Cambridge, that's what I did. I traipsed all over. Uh, Italy, and I read in Spanish and Portuguese, German and Latin and anything I could find looking for the comedies that Shakespeare might have been building on, and they weren't there. So then I started having a look at the um, religious polemic about marriage in the 16th century. So I I wrote this enormous wadge of stuff, putting it all together and trying to make sense of it. It was all a bit amateurish because I didn't understand the religious situation then, and uh, I sort of presented this to my teachers at, at Cambridge, and they said, Oh, Germaine, look, this isn't literature, and we don't know what to do with this. We can't assess this kind of thing. We just, just work on the plays. Will you just leave all this? So then I trotted along to the Cambridge Demographic Study Group, and I said, Can I give a paper to you people about what's happening to the ideology of marriage in the 16th century? And they said, No. What you can do is you can go and read um, parish registers. And, And um, annotate them and analyze them. And I said, no, no, (laughs) I'm doing a PhD in Shakespeare. I'll get on with that. You get on with the parish registers. Um, And it was quite funny because Peter Laslett became a friend of mine in the last years of his life. He died a, a couple of years ago. And he did say, I said to him, that was a great disappointment for me because I did really want to talk about what was happening. Um, and he said, yes, he, he figures now that he was just a bit, just a bit um, unnecessarily limiting in his approach in those days. But so now I've done it. But then, you see, two years ago, I was still thinking, I really want to do this thing on marriage. And I thought, I know how to do it. I'll take a woman. I'll take the most famous woman, if you like. And who has, it's got to be Shakespeare's wife. That's how you do it. You put it all together, trying to tell the story of one woman. You you then try to indicate the life of all the other women.
1: And at the end of the book, you say, most of this book is neither truer nor less true than the accepted prejudice, Mm. which doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. What are you trying to do, just make people think about it another way?
0: I have never, ever had any other aim in anything I wrote. I always mm-hmm. want people to to consider different alternatives. I used to say to my students you do realize that everything could be otherwise uh, about anything really about all received opinions. Uh, so all in in this book there are 50 different suggestions for research. There are places to go and things to look for. We have I have said in all probability and could read. Uh, The thing she would have read every day was the Geneva Bible, not the authorised version. Uh, What would she have read every day? The Psalms. A woman who reads the Psalms every day has poetry in her brainstem. What did Shakespeare have to woo her with? Nothing. No money. We can believe he was drop-dead gorgeous, if you like, but it's not necessary. But one thing we know he had was poetry. Why assume that she wasn't attracted by it the marriage was a mistake for her she married a boy with nothing and she was a girl with something and she was the right age to be married and he was a child he well was, was a she
1: kid. just hang on a minute was she a girl with something i mean by the standards of the time was she not you know getting a bit long in the tooth and looking like sitting on the shelf
0: no not at all That's the interesting thing, and that's what Laslett knew. That's what Laslett found out all those years ago with the Cambridge um, Demographic Study Group, that in fact the age of marriage in Elizabethan England was high, and that kept the birth rate low, and that kept the population more or less static. Um, Anne was the right age to be married. She's, She's at the top end at 26. I think the mean age is 24, 25. Um, But we see there's also the other circumstances. Her father died the year before she married Shakespeare. If there had been an ongoing negotiation to marry these two people, when her father died it would have fallen over. And it's sometimes very difficult when uh, people are dividing up an inheritance to get them to commit themselves to something like a match, especially when the match is not an advantageous one. So even the pregnancy could have been a deliberate ploy to just get that marriage off the ground because the family weren't moving on it. Uh, it's all interesting, and it could all be wrong. But you see, one of the I can't understand quite why they needed the bond because Anne was not, if you'll pardon the expression, very pregnant. As the wife, as the brides went in Holy Trinity that year she was one of the least pregnant because some of them gave birth within three months of being married. So uh, they could have waited for Advent to be over. And it's not easy to tell from the bond if that is the real issue. I can't figure out why they needed to get married so fast, but the pregnancy is not the reason. Now, someone may come up with the answer just by doing more
1: work. In the Elizabethan times, weren't there sanctions if you had a child
0: within 40 weeks of the wedding? No. Well, it depends. No, there weren't. Um, the The change comes about, it's one in three brides at Holy Trinity that we can follow up. It's probably higher than that if we could follow them all up. Some of them went to their husbands' parishes after they were married. One in three of the brides that we can track uh, gave birth within 40 weeks. Now, what then happens is this goes on for about, well, almost to the end of Elizabeth's reign. Um, And it it is accompanied by a fairly high rate of illegitimacy. Uh, The marriage ceremony, the marriage event, consists of um, the contract, and even for quite lowly people there would have been a contract, the contract, cohabitation and the ceremony. And they don't have to go in that order. They can go in almost any order. But, they ha- but the three things need to be there for the children to be legitimate. The c- ceremony legitimised children of the match. Without that you could have difficulties. Now what happens towards the close of the century is the Puritan uh, clergy begin to inveigh against fornication. And they begin to treat pre- uh, premarital pregnancy as evidence of fornication rather than as evidence of marriage. Mm. And by the time we get down to the beginning of James's reign, uh, most parishes are hunting out people who are known to have cohabited before marriage, and shaming them in front of the congregation. And at the same time, the levels of bastardy drop precipitately. It's quite an interesting social change. Uh, It happens at different speeds in different parts of the country, and in some parts of the country it doesn't happen at all. Uh, And it's something that we probably need to track.
1: But Shakespeare and Anne would not have been punished in any way, would not have faced charges of fornication.
0: No. No. All
1: right. How have your Shakespeare Wallers and your Bachelor Dawns reacted to the book?
0: <laughs> well, it's very it's very frustrating in a way. I mean the book has been reviewed by all sorts of people. Um in all sorts of different ways and they've all been sort of they've all had an axe to grind one sort or another. Um, And they haven't been the right people, as far as I can see. (laughs) I really would like it to be reviewed by social historians, and not one has been asked to have a look at it. It's Mm. driving me nuts. Mm. I mean, they will do it eventually. But, I mean, my colleague John Carey, who's actually, I think, a specialist in um, novels of the 19th century, reviewed it and tried to prove that I was a romantic novelist. Um, which was his axe, you see. That's what he wanted to say. And he started off by saying that I had a mind that was nothing like Shakespeare's, which is such a silly thing to say because it's more like Shakespeare's than it is like Mao Tse Tung's, for example. What are we talking about? You know, My, my mind has been largely formed by Shakespeare. Mm. I've been... Mean, a Shakespearean all my life. It was just such a funny thing to say.
1: So he's saying, um, oh gosh, you want Shakespeare and Anne to be happily married and to love each other, and this is the story you're making up to make that happen. Was that his thesis in calling you a romantic?
0: Something like that. Well, he chose, he took as an example uh, a sentence where I say she must have missed him and probably never more than when she sat working by the dying fire as her children slept. He thought this was a highly romantic sentence. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I would have imagined that she was so bloody busy with a toddler and two twins, one of whom was probably uh, frail, um, and, and trying to make enough money to feed them. She was too busy during the day to miss him at all. In fact, she was probably glad that he was out of the way because, he, you know, we can usually handle the kids. It's usually the husband, who's the the, the last straw that breaks the camel's back, um, but in the evenings when she was, uh, she was left alone, her marital bed was empty. That's when you miss him, isn't it? Is that a romantic notion of mine? Explain to me
1: why someone like you, who's clever and beautiful and much admired, if not universally liked, would go on Celebrity Big Brother.
0: Money, my dear, was the rainforest. It was a lot of money. We made a lot of money. Oh, thank goodness. So, why
1: didn't you stay on Celebrity Big Brother? You walked out, didn't you?
0: Because we were being involved in bullying someone I perceived as vulnerable. And I knew from the way they edit the program that most of the viewers would not realize that I disapproved of what was happening and would take no part in it. Were you surprised?
1: Hmm? Were you surprised that it turned out to be some kind of, you know, sadistic fest?
0: Uh, no, but I thought i i thought i I thought I would be the victim if you see what I mean. I thought I would find it really difficult to be looked at all the time uh, because i 'm a very private person normally um, and i'm sort of i just don't have the mindset that's prepared to constantly be in an inhabited space oh God how Most much
1: money stuff. is in it for you to put yourself through that Oh, a lot how much <laughs>
0: All together, out of Big Brother, we probably made £120,000. For what, five days? Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Don't worry, I wouldn't have done it for much less. No. That wasn't the the fee that Endemol paid me, uh, but it's what came out of all the other other spin-offs. But the other thing you have to think about um, is that when I left, I left before the first eviction, and what that means on paper is I should have got nothing. When I walked out, I thought I'd put myself through all that for zip, zero, nothing. And what actually happened is that Endemol paid up, which was most surprising. But apparently they were delighted because they got such coverage in the in the broadsheet press, which they didn't normally get because I was there. So, so they you have paid me. no regrets at all? About that? Yeah. No, I don't, because it, it um, highlighted the issue of bullying, um, I think. And it made Endemol a bit more sensitive about bullying later on. Um, but there were lots of things about it. I mean, the whole thing, it was a disgusting experience. It was dirty. It was unsafe. The food we were eating was disgusting. I was, ter- I was doing most of the cooking because I had to keep busy, otherwise I think I'd have gone mad. And none of the younger women would talk to me. It was interesting. The young women wouldn't ignored me. They pretended I didn't exist. Uh, but the guys all talked to me. So I had this strange, lopsided relationship. Why didn't the girls talk to you? Oh, you'd have to ask them.
1: What? Why do you think they didn't talk to you?
0: I think probably ageism, really.
1: Invisibility. Uh,
0: uh, well, at one stage, this, there was this woman called Lisa Ianson, about whom I still know nothing. Um, and I said to her, Lisa, tell me about yourself. And she, uh, she was her favourite subject, so she opened her mouth and began and then suddenly said, oh, 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 um, I, uh, the, uh, the others are waiting for me, and, then, and just ran away. And I thought, well, what's that about? I don't know what was going on. Um, except, you know, it's a bit like, have you ever kept hens Yes, I have. Well, you know what happens when a hen becomes menopausal and stops ovulating? The other hens all attack her. Oh, it was a bit like that. It was a bit farmyard, I thought.
1: Still, you knew it wasn't going to be a holiday in the sun because £120,000 is a lot of money. It's like hardship money, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So? But it, it brought me the best shed you've ever seen in the rainforest. <laughs> the gorgeous shed we have with very good accommodation for my awesome foursome of workers.
1: So do you reflect every now and again that going on Celebrity
0: Big Brother was the only way you could raise money to build that shed? No, no, we're still raising money. Um, I mean, the, the forest has cost millions. We're not talking, you know, this is... From 2001 to now, I dread to think how much money has gone into this project. Um, and I still have to keep doing it, whatever I can. Um, I'm probably, I think I'm doing a, a commercial for £50,000. Uh, but it's what, not what, just what, any... What, what, com-
1: well, well what, what is it? What are you advertising?
0: <laughs> I'm advertising a pension scheme, I think. <laughs> <older>. National <laughs> savings, national savings. I don't know... It-
1: why? I think that's funny. I was hoping that you know you were going to say brasiers or lipstick or something. Look, I'm sixty-eight. I know, girl. I know you could still I mean, advertise. No one,
0: no one wants to see me in a bra. I can tell you. Well, you well, that would be funny. <laughs> well, that would get you
1: a lot of money.
0: What if I? No, it wouldn't. Yes, it would. You can see Hello Boys. You can see me on the poster. <laughs> Germaine Greer puts the bra back on. Stop press. Well, I'll tell you what, it's sixty-eight, they'll apt to lie on your stomach. It's a bit disheartening. Oh, no, well, her mother told her to wear that bra.
1: <laughs>
0: Germaine Greer
1: talking to me from her house in England. It's seventeen minutes to ten.